Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about his experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner, senior instructor at New York Film Academy. And in this episode, we bring you the man who greenlights and develops pretty much all your favorite Netflix shows, Chief Content Officer Ted Sarandos. Most people have no idea what they want to watch when they come on. And that, that's why a lot of our competitors will say things like, well, your show will get lost on Netflix. The truth is things get found on Netflix at remarkable levels. Some of you listening to this have HBO. Others may have cut cable entirely. Well, maybe two of you have stars, but I'll bet every one of you has Netflix. Or at least you mooch off your parents' account. In a relatively brief 20 years, Netflix has grown from a DVD distribution website to one of the world's biggest TV and movie studios. Under Ted Sarandos and CEO Reed Hastings, the company not only changed television, but the entire entertainment industry. The one-time direct mail distributor now produces feature films, Emmy-winning TV shows, documentaries, comedy specials, and practically created binge-watching thanks in no small part to a man who didn't even finish college. I thought from a very young age that I would be a journalist. That was gonna, I always thought that was going to be what I did. I didn't even graduate. I, I did two years of community college, and I had this epiphany that I was not a very good writer. And that wasn't going <laughs> to... So and I was probably not going to be a journalist. And I uh, was working part-time in these video stores while I was going to school. What was cool about it was the video stores, most young people don't even know what a video store is probably. It's like being a, a blacksmith. It's a job that doesn't exist anymore. But the video stores were empty all day. And so all day, just watched movies. So I watched every movie we had in the store over and over again. And so it was like a, a, a crash course at a film school in one. And it was a thing that kind of got me grounded in the artistic sensibility of film. And then the running the business was running a business. So it gave me the kind of the, the the business background as well. I went from that into distribution, uh, worked for the companies that sold the videos to the video stores, did that for a few years. And then I met Reed in 1999, who was, came up with the idea for Netflix, and uh, the rest is history. So Reed was a brilliant uh, software engineer. He could write code, and he had the idea to do this um, and knew how to make it work uh, from the um, system standpoint and from building a website that worked and all those kind of things. Uh, but really, the film business was not his world. He didn't have relationships with the studios. And at the time, I had been in this pocket of time when I was running the video stores and working distribution that the heads of home video had become uh, very important to the studios. They were driving all the profits. And these were the same people who were selling me movies out of books, you know, at one point. So I had the relationships with the studios at the time and knew how it worked. Uh, when I joined Netflix, we were buying all the DVDs. Back in the early days of Netflix, we used to just mail DVDs around the country. And back in those days, we'd buy the movies at Best Buy and Walmart and Costco. So basically in that first year that I joined Netflix, it was getting direct relationships with the studios and eventually developing revenue share programs and all those kind of things. The beauty of the old DVD business was you didn't have to have a deal. You just had to go buy the disc. And we had everything ever made on DVD, including all the HBO movies. So it was 100,000 movies on DVD or something. For years, Netflix delivered content on DVDs and Blu-rays. But Mr. Sarandos and Mr. Hastings foresaw that the future of home distribution was streaming. So before the DVD and Blu-ray market came to a dead end, they definitely switched lanes. 
You know, it's funny, meeting Reed in 1999, when the internet was super expensive and very slow, um, that first time we met, the conversation was about how Netflix was going to be deliver digital content to homes. So he had a very clear vision for this in 1999, and that we never intended, we knew in 2000, DVD was not going to be the permanent format, that something else was going to replace DVD. So we knew our business was going to be obsoleted. So by doing that, you never really got that attached to that format. So it's very unusual in business to move from one generation to the next. Like uh, Greyhound buses, you know, Greyhound never had an airline. Uh, Amtrak never got, an air, you know, got into the plane business. And it's very unusual to, you know, not to get displaced by the next thing. And we did that. We avoided it by knowing that there was going and admitting that there was going to be a next thing. So when we started, we said, look, the cost of postage, because we we're mailing DVDs, is going up a little bit every year. And the cost of streaming a video or downloading video is plummeting. And right at that cross point, that's when we start streaming. Because if we start investing too early, no one can watch the programming because it's too expensive to download. And if we do it too late, someone's going to beat us to it. So we were actually watching the trajectory of those two things to figure out when to get in. But we had no affinity, I think, for the disc. Really, was the affinity was for the content, for the TV shows and the movies that people were watching on it. After making their name as a leader in distribution, Netflix set their sights on creating their own content. Their first original series, House of Cards, was viewed by most as a massive gamble. But according to Ted Sarandos, enlisting the show's talented creators was the safest bet he could hope for. It sent shockwave through the industry um, because it broke all the rules to give somebody 26 episodes without a pilot and create a freedom to boot. And not just somebody, David, David Fincher. <laughs> He's uh, exacting. I love more than anything somebody who knows what they want and knows what is important and what isn't. And I would say that David, we never had a, a wasted conversation or a wasted argument about anything in, during, during this production. And the, the, the trick of that thing was, when we got the pitch for House of Cards, we had three really beautifully written scripts from Bo Willimon, who was nominated for an Oscar that year. David Fincher was going to direct, first time directing television. And Kevin Spacey to star and Robin Wright to star. I mean, it felt like a no-brainer. If you're going to ever do this, just you do this one. And I was very familiar with the British version, of having seen the DVD version of it uh, many times. It's a great series. So I had this great source material, a great adaptation, great director, a great star, great scripts. The thing was, we've never done this before. So when they said, do you want to come and hear the pitch? I said, no, I want to come and pitch David as to why he should do it for yes. In other words, I'm saying yes right now, but there's a million reasons he should never do it here. We've never launched an original anything. All of our shows on Netflix at the time were licensed from other networks and reruns. And I saw we got the meeting to go in on Monday morning, sat with David, and I just said, the answer is yes. And we'll give you two seasons with no pilot and no notes. So what you technically could give us 26 hours of your home movies, but you have to put your name on it. And the bet was is that someone who really cared about their brand would really make it great if you gave them the freedom to do that. And that's what we did. Hundreds of original properties later, Mr. Sarandos still chooses his shows the same way, looking for the right mix of talent and material. So when the director of Billy Elliot and the writer of Frost Nixon pitched The Crown, Netflix leapt at the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I think The Crown came to us. Uh, Peter Morgan and Stephen Daldry came in for a pitch about a show about the life of the Queen. And it would take six seasons of television to do it. 
uh, and that we would we committed to do the first two right out of the gate. Uh, again, other people had been interested, but no one was was committed enough to give them both seasons. And Peter writes every word of the show, and it's just uh, it's a I think it's a remarkable bit of television. While most studios comb the creative universe for intellectual property, Netflix is just as comfortable buying a completely original vision. There's 11 or 12 conference rooms that are down here on the first floor. Every day, dozens and dozens of pitch meetings take place, uh, which are people either with a script or an idea or a Bible for a show. Typically for us, because we don't do pilots, we look for a show to be very well developed in a pilot script, preferably and a Bible, some attached talent, directing talent, writing talent, acting talent. Uh, and then it's evaluated from our teams in a fairly traditional way. You know, is this a world that people want to spend a lot of time in? Are these people that people want to spend a lot of time with? Is it a vision that can be executed? And typically that comes from, have you done it before? And, you know, can, you, can it be repeated? I don't think it's important at all. Um, it's just, it is one of those things where a lot of things come from books and remakes and sequels. But the things I've been most proud of are things like Okja uh, or Bright that are completely original worlds, you know, not based on a book or a spin-off or a remake of anything. Netflix isn't afraid of working with newer talent. If they were, the world would have been deprived of shows like Stranger Things, and we would have never experienced Eleven's love of egos or the terror of the Demogorgon. Man, that would have been a tragedy. Well, it helps if they've done something before, right? So you could look to something. And I don't mean I've had a TV series. That's a very high bar. But something like the Duffer Brothers, when they created Stranger Things, um, they had made a very low-budget film at Warner Brothers that had never even been released. Uh, so when they gave us this pitch, my team was uh, really blown away by the concept. And it was pretty ambitious, what they were proposing. And the big challenge was, well, can these young guys who have basically done a couple of episodes of Wayward Pines you know, run a show. It's like a, you know, being a showrunner is like being a CEO. You know, it's a big first job. So um, we love the concept. We love their take on it. We had some questions as to whether or not we thought they could execute. So we got a hold of that movie that they made for Warner Brothers and everyone was loved it and loved what they did on very low budget. Um, and it was enough. Mr. Sarandis understands that their audience of over 100 million has a taste much more varied than his own. He also appreciates how deeply we connect to our favorite shows. The thing I have to remember is that we don't program for my taste. We have to program for everybody. So, and what um, is your taste? <laughs> well, my taste is all over the board. I, I like, I personally like grounded drama and comedy more than sci-fi or fantasy. I just have never been a big fan of sci-fi and fantasy. Every once in a while, I stumble into something I really love, but for the most part, you know, really grounded drama, human stories, you know. So what I'm looking for, like I said, it's that, that world building, right? That, I can't wait to see these people again. I'm you know, 54 years old, so I, I grew up at a time when like, television was kind of the center of my world. Like there were only three networks and three hours of prime time, and you knew what night things were on, and you knew what networks they were on, and you knew the characters, you knew their first and their last names, you knew where they worked, right? I mean, the shows that you grew up on, I, I, I always tell people about, you know, All in the Family. You know, they lived on Hauser Street. So I knew his wife's first and last name. Uh, I knew his cousin Maud. You know, so you really were invested in these people on television. And I think what's happening now is that content is a little bit commoditized in a way that it's everywhere. And it's like my kids are, you know, 21 and 23. They have no idea what night anything's on any network or how to find anything. It's a different relationship. So I'm looking for that thing that will 
pull you back and make you say, I'm going to spend 13 almost uninterrupted hours with these people. The unique way Netflix conducts business with Shonda Rhimes, Adam Sandler, and others actually parallels the unusual way audiences watch their shows. So instead of spreading out their salaries over years, they pay them in full right up front. Well, mostly there is no back end. We would rather the shows that are on Netflix and the films that are on Netflix be only on Netflix. That's the reason why people subscribe. So we think there's more value in the exclusivity than there is in the aftermarket for the product. So we buy it, we figure out with the talent, you know, what their share of a back end would have been and guarantee it and pay it up front. Back end deals would meaning that they would get a percentage of the DVD sales. We don't sell DVDs, so there's no, yeah. But we, yes, we do awards bonuses and all that kind of stuff, yeah. It's meant to be competitive with how it would have gone through any other channel. Uh, but since we're not selling DVDs or we're not in theaters, we're not selling syndication, that whatever their share would have been in success, we agreed to that number up front. Though Mr. Sarandis used to oversee pretty much every creative and business decision, he now empowers his associates to greenlight the next must-see movie or show. Well, on the artistic side, the only way that we could do what we do at the volume that we're doing it, you know, we produce original films, television shows, you know, scripted series, documentaries, documentary shorts, kids shows, feature films, unscripted television. So we're producing across every discipline of content creation. And I have an amazing team that I trust and I empower. So the two people who work for me have absolute green light power, meaning they can buy any project in the room. And they don't have to wait for me, they don't need my approval. And it's, there's no way that if I created a bottleneck of decision making, that we could keep up with that. Secondly, I wouldn't want the programming on Netflix to reflect my taste. I want it to reflect the vast majority of other people's taste. So, you know, because we're programming for the world. So what, what I really, you know, there are shows that I fall in love with, that I champion. There are some that I say, you know, give them a second listen. I think you might have missed something. Uh, but for the most part, it's an amazing team we've built. And there are shows today on Netflix that I don't see until I watch it on Netflix with you. And that's a, a good place to be in terms of being able to let things go so that you can move fast. But to me, I think it's about necessity. So like when we said that we were not going to give David Fincher's notes, it was perfect. I had nobody to give him notes. I had no staff. And I think right now, if I had to watch everything that was on Netflix, there's, not, there's literally not enough hours in the day anymore to watch every episode of it, or every cut or to read every draft. Now, in the early days, when we were doing the first year, we did House of Cards, Orange is the New Black, Arrested Development, and a show called Hemlock Grove and Lilyhammer, and watched every cut, read every draft, went to every production meeting, visited every set, and you know, that's obviously you can't do that today. Netflix has also resuscitated a number of beloved properties from other networks, Mystery Science Theater, Full House, and even the movie Wet Hot American Summer all returned to the screen thanks to Mr. Sarandos and company. But perhaps most deservedly, the legendary Bluth family from Arrested Development got a long overdue reunion. I don't have time for your magic tricks. Illusions, Dad. You don't have time for my illusions. What is wrong with you? These are my words, Mother. From Army. There are dozens of us. Dozens! I'm a monster! Why does everybody think that I'm scared of girls? Because you're a chicken. You're a chicken. Cuckoo kacha! Cuckoo kacha! Yeah. What are you doing? My yeah. women? A cuckoo 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 cuckoo. That's what I was just telling him. Has anyone in this family ever even seen a chicken? 
Arrested Development, I think, is, you know, you know when something fails and people t try to make you feel good and they go, it's ahead of its time. <laughs> and it's usually a lie. But in Arrested Development's case, it was 100% true. And what I mean by that is the year that it got canceled was the first year we started streaming on Netflix. And because it had only made it, you know, through a couple of years of, of seasons, it didn't have enough seasons to go into syndication. So Fox licensed it to us. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't yes. have if it had been in yes. syndication. And because it was on Netflix, this whole new generation of people started watching it. And the show, the problem with the show in terms of mass appeal is that, and I say problem, it's a very wonderful problem to have, but it's so dense with jokes and storyline and character that for a 30-minute sitcom with commercials, they were moving so fast. And sometimes what Mitch Hurwitz, the creator, would do is he'd set up a joke in episode two, and the punchline would be in episode seven. And in network television, when you're watching a week and a week and a week, you lose the audience. You, half the audience didn't hear the setup. So with Netflix, you watch the whole thing, and it's a piece of art like you've never seen before. And the fan base actually got bigger and more passionate for that show five years later when we started doing originals. So I had seen that behavior on Netflix. I had my own kids like, have you seen this show called Arrested Development? It's like it's, like it's a brand new thing. <laughs> and so I, I met Ron Howard at a, at a party and just told him about how I think the show could come back and it could come back on Netflix. And he introduced me to Mitch Hurwitz, and we had a, a conference call in a room, and Mitch actually put a baseball cap on, his, on the speakerphone because Ron wasn't there, so you know, I felt like Ron was in the room. Uh, but then we, when we said yes, and we made the plan in the room. The extended plant and payoff of Arrested Development was perfectly suited for Netflix, though their method of releasing an entire season all at once was initially less of an aesthetic choice and more of a practical one. So prior to House of Cards, we got everything all at once because we were a year behind. So the season would run, they would deliver us all the episodes, we'd put them all up. So everything we had was all at once. So when it came to, down to this, we thought, well, we didn't really even think about how we are gonna release it until a few months before. And somebody said to me, like, well, how are we gonna do this? Um, we could do one a week, we could do four a month, and we could do all these different things. And I thought, well, everything else on Netflix, we have thousands of things to watch on Netflix, and we're gonna have one thing that you watch once a week. It just didn't seem like it made any sense. So it really wasn't a big strategy to change television, but it was a practical decision. And it turned out to be the thing that differentiated us from everybody else. I think people started binging television shows on Netflix in their DVD days. Because you get the DVD in the mail, there'd be four episodes on the disc. And what we noticed was is that those discs would get turned faster than a movie. Because people would just like burn through a season of a show and you know, there are two or three discs they'd have out. And that's how I watched The Sopranos in the box sets. And I remember getting the, to that last disc and it's feeling, oh God, I gotta wait another year. So it was the same thing. Despite the proliferation of digital streaming, there remains one element from the analog days of home video that is alive and well, browsing. Used to be we would walk up and down the aisles of Blockbuster all night. Trying to find one title everyone agreed on. And now we can scroll through seemingly endless pages of choices to find that one perfect title. The truth is things get found on Netflix at remarkable levels. Uh, about a third of the most popular shows on television are on Netflix because this happens. So there's a movie, Kissing Booth. For me, there was nothing more important than following the rules. But in life, you can either follow the rules or follow your heart. I presented to um, 500 agents over two days uh, from four different agencies. Uh, 500 entertainment professionals. 
and less than a dozen of them had ever heard of the movie. And yet, it was one of the most popular movies in the world at that time. Meaning that more people watched Kissing Booth on Netflix than saw Solo in the movie theater. You know what I mean? So when you look at that and say, but that audience all knew Solo because it's a Star Wars movie. But there's a whole culture of people who are talking about and seeing and watching and tweeting and you know, telling their friends about movies that grow to these enormous audiences. And it's shocking for people that it's happening. And they say, well, there's a movie that tens of millions of people found on Netflix in a sea of other great things to watch. But these are, you know, studios don't make romantic comedies anymore. They find them very hard to sell. Just go with it, the Adam Sandler. And, yes. and we're shooting another one right now with Jennifer Aniston and Adam Sandler right now called Murder Mystery, shooting in Montreal and then Italy next week. And I don't know why that something, I think what happens is buyers have a conventional wisdom about something and just decide it's true, and then it becomes true. It's like romantic comedies don't work. They don't travel. Well, that's not true. But somebody said that, so they stopped making romantic comedies. Adam Sandler's a great example of that, where they'd say, oh, Adam Sandler movies don't travel, so they don't open them, out, and, and therefore he becomes domestic. And we have this big global audience. When, when Adam, a couple of years ago, Adam went on a vacation to Italy, and I said, you're going to have a terrible time in Capri. It's a tiny little place, and every, you're going to get mobbed for selfies all day. And he said, no, my, my movies never play in Italy. People don't even know me there. And what happened since the last time he was in Italy is his movies came on Netflix, and he was enormously, he got mobbed. He had a horrible time. So that's what's different, I think. I think a great example of the bias of buyers influencing what people get to watch. Last year at Sundance, there were two movies about rappers, uh, Patty Cakes, which was the biggest buy at Sundance that year. Introducing Miss Patricia Dabrowski, a.k.a. Patty Cakes, a.k.a. Kendall And Roxanne Roxanne, which was an amazing movie uh, about Roxanne Chante as one of the early New York rappers. Do you know how old she is? She's 16. You don't want your daughter to be happy or something. You want her to be miserable just like you. You a nasty motherfucker. And I will tell you the frenzy around patty cakes that everyone has was going to go buy it. And they said, we're going to buy one rap movie, the rap movie with the white girl in it, not the real rap movie. And that movie went unsold until Netflix came in and picked up Roxanne Roxanne. And almost 10 million people have watched Roxanne Roxanne on Netflix. It's a great success story. And patty cakes came out and did less than a million dollars at the box office. Netflix may have brought movies and shows of all shapes and sizes to a massive audience, but even Ted Sarandos, the company's chief content officer, was unable to save one of his personal favorites. If you want to give an insight into my taste, that's a show that did, unfortunately, we only we did two seasons and it didn't, didn't do that well, but um, Lady Dynamite, I think, is one of the better comedies on television that we did. We just finished the, they finished its second season last year. Maria Bamford, it's just a really fun, quirky, envelope-pushing comedy that I'm just really proud of. I'm a 45-year-old woman who's clearly sun damaged. My skin is getting softer, yet my bones are jutting out, so I'm half soft, half sharp. And I have a show! What a great late-in-life opportunity! That's closest to my taste, I think. I mean, it's a hard thing because they feel a bit like your children. You can't pick your favorite kid. And I think sometimes the experiences are not as good as the projects and the other way around where yeah, it's a really grueling shoot, as you know, and then something turns out to be amazing. So I, it's, it's a harder one to pick. I think I really like the discoveries, you know, like things like End of the F***ing World this year that kind of no one saw coming. And they changed everything, I think, in terms of you've got a cast that was barely known, 
You've got a first-time writer, a first-time showrunner, and had no reverence for the format at all. Like one of the episodes was only 17 minutes long. And it was just like you watched the whole season in three hours and 20 minutes or something like that. And it's just, I, I just thought they did a remarkable job like reinventing the form. And that's what I look for, and that's what you get really excited about when people are willing to do it. One of Netflix's greatest contributions is bringing the documentary, a sometimes underserved genre, to a larger audience than ever before. I mean, I don't think the market's ever been better. I mean, prior to Netflix, I mean, the whole business was based on could you sell movie tickets in art house theaters and DVDs. I think one of the reasons that Netflix became so popular on DVD was that underserved audiences, foreign language film, documentary film, had no place to see these movies. That's the only category of the Oscars that all five nominees would never be available to most people. And so if you had Netflix, you could get all of them and see them. And it built and built and built. So we had, we'd always had a differentially big foreign film and documentary fan base. So we actually, our first part of a, before we started doing original shows, we had a label called Red Envelope Entertainment, where we were producing and acquiring um, documentaries uh, like the Oscar winner um, uh, Born in the Brothels. And that was like, that predated our original content initiative by several years. Uh, but we weren't quite big enough to support it yet. So we're, we were ahead of our time too. But now we are fully financing and producing. We have 65 original doc features we're releasing this year. And we have a documentary series like Wild Wild Country and Evil Genius uh, and Doc Shorts. Um, we've been nominated for three Oscars for our Doc Shorts and, and one last year. So I would say this, when I said, what's the market like? It's not a great way to make money. Uh, so there's not a lot of money in it. You have to be, you have to get ready for that. But it's a great way to showcase your work. Um, it's a great way to tell really powerful and meaningful stories. And it's a great way to work on your craft. Under Ted Sarandos, the Netflix audience continues to expand and diversify as the network's content becomes increasingly global friendly. We try to make things, you know, and make them all global. We just launched a show in India called Sacred Games. You can watch it here. Uh, and we use the technology to overcome the language barrier, dubbing and subtitling. And we're trying to get really great at dubbing into English, which is really, uh, there's no real call, for, there hadn't been really much call for it prior to, you know, what we're doing. You know, movies that wouldn't play here, you know, they were dubbing Godzilla movies, but not art house movies from Japan. Same thing with the kind of Hong Kong cinema, the dubbing into English was really bad. So it never really became much more than a little niche. So we are um, putting a lot of energy into dubbing our content better and better for the world, including the English market. So we produce a show uh, in Denmark called The Rain, that the actors in Denmark all spoke perfect English too. So it was local language, but they also dubbed themselves into English. And then we use voice actors for all the other territories. So we try to make everything available subtitled and in most territories, both subtitled and dubbed. And now picking those projects, I have teams all over the world. We have an office in Mumbai, in Singapore, in Tokyo, that are watching the content from around the world and doing what we're doing here, but all over the world. So they're inbounding shows, hearing pitches, reading scripts, and producing global shows, but from everywhere in the world. The only place where Mr. Sarandos expressed any doubt about expanding the Netflix empire is the movie theater. What I think is that the world is moving very quickly and uh, the generations behind me who are raised on the internet have an expectation of kind of what they want, where they want, how they want. And the notion of being in a movie theater seated at eight o'clock makes almost no sense to a guy like you and your lifestyle, my guess is. 
and that the viewing experience at home has gotten remarkably good, both in the fidelity and the comforts of home and all those things. And the experience in the multiplex has gotten pretty lousy. Smaller screens, people on phones, sticky floors, rigid showtimes, commercials. And by the way, I love movies. I love going to the movies. But I like to go to the iPixer. I like to go to a clean theater. I like to go to the Arclight. But most people in the world have no access to the Arclight. So we're not trying to hurt or save the theater business. We're trying to serve film lovers. And for the most part, there's could be nothing more aggravating than this film that you hear about all over the world, everyone's talking about, and you have no ability to see it for six, seven, eight months until after it came out. And by then, another 400 movies have come out, so you forgot. So it's just a super inefficient distribution model, and increasingly it's not a great experience for people. I say that broadly, because I get to go to the Arclight, but like I said, for most people who have got a, a tiny little theater in their town or, a, or worse, a multiplex with 15 tiny screens, it's not really that much different than watching at home anymore. And I think the desire to have that big theatrical thing is generational, meaning people who grew up on you know, desiring to make a movie for a big screen, that's how they perceived it in their head. So if they never get to realize that, it feels like a lost experience. But the truth is, when you see a movie at a premiere or you see it at a festival, it happened. You saw it on a big screen with an audience. But the rest of the world is going to experience it much different. So we're not trying to push our movies out to broad theatrical. I'm not trying to keep them off of screens. I would love the theaters to book our movies, uh, but I want to do it day and date. So meaning that I don't want to hold back a Netflix movie from 130 million people so that a couple hundred people can watch it in Chicago. So no, that, that's not the drive. The drive is to work with really great filmmakers, tell really great stories, serve film lovers, and the theater is something that is, I hope it lasts forever and I hope people keep supporting it. But in general, I don't, it's a very differentiated experience, I think. When asked about how to start a career in entertainment, Mr. Sarandis advised our students to go after every opportunity instead of just following a dream. When you're out of school, I mean, you didn't finish it. Did you have a plan at that time? No, I wasn't sure what I would do that time. I wanted to be a journalist at going, I thought. I think one of the worst pieces of advice that young people always get is to follow your passion. Because I think it's really what you want to do is figure out what you're really good at. And you will be really passionate about things that you're good at. I would love to be a professional golfer. That's never going to happen. So I, I can keep following that passion, but it's going to come at the expense of a lot of everything else. So I think the best thing to do, you know, I think in your 20s and early 30s, is to really try as many things as you can and figure out what you're really good at. And even if you're not passionate about it, I bet you will be if you're great at it. Golfer or not, Ted Sarandos has been a trailblazer in the entertainment industry. He's one of the few producers who has worked across all genres of film and television and succeeded at all of it. We want to thank him not only for speaking to our students, but also for bringing them to the amazing Netflix campus for the Q&A. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. This episode was based on the Q&A moderated and produced by Toba Leiter. To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and myself. Executive produced by Toba Leiter, John Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. Special thanks to Netflix, Saja Johnson, Melissa Enright, our media content and events departments, as well as the staff and crew who made this all possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. 
Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next time. Please note, the term Netflix and chill was not used in this episode despite my repeated attempts. We hope you enjoyed the episode and thank you for listening.